Let's pray again. Heavenly Father, please speak to us now. Help us to sit under your word. That things we hear that we may find hard, we may accept them as being the words of our shepherd. Teach us to follow Jesus, we ask. Amen. Jesus brings division. Jesus divides. It's not, it's not something we might normally say of Jesus. We'd normally talk about Jesus bringing life or bringing eternity, bringing forgiveness. These are the thoughts, sorts of things that we talk about Jesus. And yet Jesus brings division. It's been very clear the last five chapters, from chapter 5 of John through to chapter 10, is all about division. You might have noticed over the last few weeks that we've heard those words time and again, again, the Jews were divided. And some will look at Jesus and think, he's absolutely loony, he's mad, he's he's demon-possessed, he's crazy, the things that he's saying. Others will say he's blaspheming. And yet others believe. Jesus brings division. And it's very strange because the Jews all saw the same things. They saw the same miracles, the same healings. They heard the same teaching that that had authority and power. And yet some believed and some did not. Why? Why is it that Jesus brings such division? Why is it that today still the same gospel might well be preached to two people and one will reject it and the other accept it? What is it about Jesus and his ministry and his message that divides? And we're going to get to that question. And by the end of this chapter, we're going to once again see the division that Jesus brings But we're going to have to do a bit of work before we get there. We're going to have to talk about sheep and about shepherds. Now, I'm very sorry that there is no handout today. It would have been a good week to have one because if you've got a scrap piece of paper, I'd encourage you to take notes. We're going to cover a lot and we're going to go fairly fast. So well worth writing things down to reflect on later. But first, let's talk about shepherds. Now, we're going to go back to Ezekiel 34, that first Bible reading that we had, page 837, if you've got a pew Bible. We need to get in our back of our minds the, the, the backdrop, the context, what is going on in Jesus' times. Now you can tell me what the job description of a shepherd is. What does a shepherd do? Take care of his sheep, yeah? I mean, a shepherd pushes sheep around. That's what he does, right? Go this way, eat that grass, come back this way, drink that water, come back this way, go inside, right? That's, that's what a shepherd does. And we've kind of replaced the the staff and the crook for motorbikes and dogs, but but it's the same thing still, right? You go round up the sheep, come into this paddock, go over into the next one. A good shepherd pushes sheep around for the sake of the sheep, the best pasture, the good water, the safety at night. However, Israel's shepherds failed. Now, as as an imagery, as a metaphor, the shepherds here is clearly the rulers, the leaders, the ones who are supposed to be pushing Israel around in the right paths, in the right places, caring for them, not fattening themselves. But God had rather damning words for the shepherds of Israel. Ezekiel 34 and verse 1. Keep your finger in John. It's uh, worth turning over to Ezekiel. This is what he said. Here is his indictment against the shepherds of Israel. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, woe to the shepherds of Israel who only take care of themselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? A good shepherd cares for the sheep, 
These shepherds were caring only for themselves. You eat the curds, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the choice animals, but you don't take care of the flock. You don't strengthen the weak or heal the sick or bind the injured. You don't go looking for the strays. You don't, you don't care about them. You care only about yourself. And so God says, I am against them. These shepherds are not in a good place. But Ezekiel 34 has a promise in it. It looks forward to a new day. Bad shepherds are going to be done away with and God himself will become the shepherd of Israel. Pick it up in verse 11. This is what the sovereign Lord says, I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he's with them, so will I look after my sheep. It's an extraordinary promise. The day is coming in which I, God, will shepherd my sheep. And the way he will shepherd his sheep is by appointing the one shepherd over them. And so verse 22, I will save my flock. They will no longer be plundered. I will judge between one sheep and another. I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God and David will be their prince. I, the Lord, have spoken. We need this in the back of our heads as we come to John 9 and 10. Ezekiel 34 saw the, the indictment upon the shepherds of Israel. You have failed. And it brought with it the promise of this new day in which God would shepherd his people and in which God's shepherd, the son of David, the Messiah, if you like, this anointed king, the Christ, would shepherd God's people. Now, just as an aside, uh, this, this really is an aside, but it's one worth making. If, if a shepherd is, is a ruler, a lord, one who directs, one who instructs the people in the way to go, cares for them, and especially cares for them through the speaking of God, God's word, I think it's slightly unfortunate what we've done to the word pastor. Do you know what the word pastor means? Shepherd. Right? It's Latin for shepherd. There you go. You now know a word of Latin. Um, you didn't think you'd learn that at church today, did you? Pastor is the Latin word for shepherd. Now, unfortunately, we take pastor to kind of mean a, a sort of a counsellor. Nothing against counsellors. Good, good on you guys. Counsellors are great. But, but when we think of a pastor as this sort of non-directive counsellor, we've missed the biblical picture of the shepherd, the one who guides the sheep for their sake. Now, Psalm 23, very famously, David says, The Lord is my shepherd. And what is it that the shepherd does? He makes me lie down in green pastures. He guides me through ways of righteousness. He leads me to still waters. Just to keep in mind, what is the role of a pastor? What is the role of a shepherd? I should introduce myself. Hi, I'm Shepherd Dave instead of Pastor Dave. See what that says to people. Anyway, Ezekiel 34. The shepherds of Israel have failed. And God promised a day in which he would shepherd his people and his king, his shepherd, the son of David, would shepherd his people. And so we came to John 9 last week. And John chapter 9 is nothing if not failed shepherds. Now you remember if you were here last week, the story, a man who was blind and had been blind for a very long time, was healed by Jesus. And what did the Jews and the Pharisees and the leaders do? Brilliant! One of the lame sheep has been healed and cared for and good on him and we're so happy. And no, who did this? What do you think you're doing? What is going on here? How come you're doing these things on the Sabbath? That's no good. You shouldn't be healed. Absolutely no concern whatsoever for the sheep. In fact, they bring in this man's parents and browbeat them. 
We read in verse 22, his parents answered the way they answered because they were afraid of them. Already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. These were failed shepherds. And it is to them that Jesus addresses chapter 10. Now we've got a little heading and a little chapter number in between chapters 9 and 10, but they're they're not there, right? They're just the the translators thinking that we're not clever enough to read a big chunk of text and we need to break it up somehow. I mean, the numbers are useful for references, but the little little heading is, is really, there's no point to it. But Jesus is speaking to these Pharisees and he's speaking to them about spiritual blindness and he's saying, you guys are still spiritually blind. And to them, he goes on to talk about shepherds. And he compares, he contrasts himself to them. You guys, you're nothing but a bunch of bullies. You're a bunch of thieves and robbers who have no concern for the sheep. But let me tell you about me. Let me tell you about the good shepherd. And he has three comparisons that he makes as he goes along. So we're finally at John chapter 10 and verse 1. And the first comparison is between himself as a shepherd and the thieves and the robbers, those who came before. Chapter 10 and verse 1, I tell you the truth, the man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of his sheep. And listen to the difference Verse 4, when he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. The sheep recognize the voice of the shepherd, but they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they don't recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but they didn't get what he was telling. They didn't understand it. It's a little bit too obtuse for them. So he makes it a little bit clearer, his second comparison. The the sheep will follow the voice of the shepherd. They will not follow the thieves and the robbers. The second comparison, verse 7, I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. Whoever came before me were thieves and robbers. The sheep didn't listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. As the good shepherd, you come to me, you come through me, and you will receive life. Whereas the thief, verse 10, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. A little bit of an insult. You're speaking to this group of Pharisees. You're saying to them, you guys are a bunch of thieves and robbers and all you have done for the sheep sheep is stolen from them and killed them and destroyed them for your own gain. But in comparison, I bring life. And I bring life, the third comparison, because I am the good shepherd. I am the extraordinary shepherd, really, because the good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. The hired hand, he's not the shepherd, he doesn't care. You can picture that, right? You've got someone else's business, you've got their stock in front of you, fire's about to destroy it all, do you throw yourself in to save it? Well, of course not, right? My wage isn't worth that, my salary, who cares? I'm out of here, they can die, I'm safe. Whereas the owner of the business looks upon this and goes, that's my livelihood. In fact, even more than that in this case, it's not just stock, but it's Flock, it's my sheep, I love them, I care for them, I die for them, for their sake. Such is the good shepherd. And he is the good shepherd because he knows his sheep and his sheep know him and they are the sheep that the Father gives to him. This good shepherd has an extraordinary relationship with God. Verse 15, the Father knows me and I know the Father. I lay my life down for the sheep. 
The reason my father loves me, verse 17, is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. See, here is the shepherd of Ezekiel 34. God shepherding his flock and his shepherd shepherding God's flock. I am this extraordinary figure. I am the David of Ezekiel 34. I am the anointed one of God. And the Jews get it. They get it enough to once again, verse 19, be divided. At these words, the Jews were again divided. Many said he's demon-possessed, he's raving mad. Why would we bother listening to him? He's absolutely bonkers. But others said these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? We've still got that story echoing in our minds. Now, do you ever ask questions that the answer is right there in front of you? You haven't been known to ask, you know, someone's like, I'm I'm quite famous for this at home, uh, or infamous. Um, I might be, I might be looking, looking for something, right? I might have been looking for it for five minutes. Where are my keys? Where am I? Where did I put my keys? Where's, where's my wallet, right? Where's the kids' toys? Where is, and I'm, I just, I cannot for the life of me find it, right? And so what I do is I ask Edwina, because she has some sort of magical, I I don't know how it works, GPS positioning for everything in the house or something. And so you might hear in our house quite frequently something like, Edwina, have you seen? Oh, never mind, I found it. Right? Is, that, is that ever you? It was right there the whole time and I just couldn't see it until I asked. I'm fairly certain that if we lived a couple of hundred years ago, she would have been burnt as a witch by now because every time I do it, right, it's like, where is art? Oh, yep, no, there it is. You, you, somehow you made it appear. Um, it happens time and time again. It was right there in front of me. I'm asking a question about something that is plain and obvious and I should have seen it. And the Jews come to Jesus and ask exactly one of those questions. Now they're all gathering again together, verse 22, and and they're there and the Jews gathered and they asked him, look, enough's enough. How long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Yes or no? It's not that hard, Jesus. Just, just here's a yes or no. I'm kind of sick of politicians by now, right? The last the last couple of weeks have been uh, a little bit of a circus, and whatever the outcome uh, of of the election is going to end up being, we, we we've had weeks and weeks of of people being asked yes or no questions and answering with, well, let me tell you about my policies, as we've been saying all along. It's like just just say yes or no. That, that's it. Just yes or no. Answer the question. Answer the question, Jesus. And he. Kind of does a politician answer, to be honest. Well, actually, let me tell you about my policies. And I did tell you. I did tell you. Am I the Christ? Am I this one that you are waiting for? Am I God's shepherd? I did tell you. And more than just tell you, I showed you. What more do you want than the actions that I have done? I mean, I could answer your question if you want, but like you're going to believe me just by me telling you. If I, are you the Christ? Yes. Oh, we'll go and prove it. Well, what have I been doing? I did tell you, but you don't believe. The miracles I do in my Father's name speak for me. And yet they didn't believe. Why? Why did they not believe? They had what so many people ask for. If only Jesus would appear before me. They had that. If only Jesus would do a miraculous healing. He did. If only Jesus would walk on water and calm a storm and he did. If only Jesus would feed the multitude. He did. If only Jesus would teach with authority and with wisdom like none we've ever heard. He did. And they didn't believe. And the answer is hard. 
It's not hard to understand, but it is hard to sit under. It's there in verse 26. You don't believe because you're not my sheep. You don't believe because you are not the ones that God chose to give to me. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my hand or out of his. You don't believe because God did not choose you. Now I've got six implications that I want to draw out from that. And this is where if you're taking notes, it be well worthwhile writing these down. So you can think about it, you can, we can discuss it further. Six implications. Number one, people believe in Jesus because God chooses to give them to him. People believe in Jesus because God chooses to give them to Jesus. And so secondly, the flip side of it, people don't believe because God has not given them to Jesus. You do not believe because you are not my sheep, Jesus said to them. Thirdly, for many, believers and unbelievers, this is the single hardest teaching in the Bible. How's, how's that fair? How's, how's it fair that God would choose some and not others? I mean, doesn't that make us utterly helpless? What can I do if I'm one of the ones not chosen? Are you just saying I've got no hope? I can't believe? Or, or the other way around. Are you saying that because I don't believe, God hasn't chosen me? And the answer is yes. If you hear the voice of Jesus and turn away, it is because you are not one of his sheep. Now, I know that for some that may well become a flippant excuse. Oh, well, <laughs> I'm an unbeliever. must be because God hasn't chosen me. Oh, what a shame. And, and But I think for people like that, any doctrine will serve to hide hardness of heart. It, it, it feels confronting. It feels rude. It, it feels impolite. How can you say that to someone, David? That they're not going to believe because God hasn't chosen them. How can you say that to an unbeliever? Surely we should keep this as kind of a, a hidden. It's a Christian doctrine. We'll, we'll talk about it at, at church weekend away and, and Bible study. And just for Christians, it's not, it's not really for, for public consumption, this doctrine. And yet Jesus spoke it to a bunch of unbelievers. Standing in front of him, he said, you don't believe because you're not my sheep. Now I hope and pray that this will serve two purposes, this teaching as we hear it and as we learn it. Firstly, for Christians, that it will turn us to thankfulness and to praise. All, all glory, all the honour must go to God. You and I believe not because we're particularly clever or because we're particularly good looking or because we're particularly well educated or because of our background or because of our parents or because we've worked it out in Atlas Seven. We believe because God chose no merit of our own. No, we, we had no say in it. God simply went, you are going to be one of my sheep and gave, them to, gave us to Jesus. And so there's no room for pride. We can't stand before God and say, hey, look at me. 
We must thank him. We must praise him. We must give him all the glory. But I also hope and pray that if you are an unbeliever, if you are one of those who has not trusted in Jesus, that this will serve to show you the helplessness, the lostness, the hopelessness outside of the flock. If it's a matter of God's choice, what can I possibly do? How can I get myself in? The answer is you cannot. It is a matter of God's choosing. And I hope and pray that this may be the word that scares you, that frightens you, that turns you around, that makes you throw yourself before God and plead with him, please, not to be abandoned outside the flock. Firstly, people believe because God chooses to give them to Jesus. Secondly, therefore, people do not believe because God has not given them to Jesus. Thirdly, this is a very, very hard teaching and one that should turn up believers to praise God and unbelievers in fear and trembling to God. Fourthly, you can recognise the sheep of Jesus because they listen to the shepherd. You can recognise the sheep because they hear the voice of Jesus and they go, yes, I want to follow that voice. That is the voice I know. And so be very wary, be very careful of people who speak ill of the Scriptures, who, who, just, who disparage it, who put it down. They're not telling you anything at all about the Word of God. They're telling you everything about themselves. For the sheep listen and obey. Those who are not sheep turn away from the voice of the shepherd. You can recognise sheep because they listen to the shepherd. And so fifthly, you can know yourself to be a sheep. In, in a good sense, not in a bad sense, you can know yourself to be one of the sheep of the flock if you delight in the voice of the shepherd. You can know if God is at work in you by how you respond to Jesus' words, including, may I add, these words. Do you delight in listening to the word of God, in reading the scriptures, in pouring yourself into them? Do you love to submit your own life to them? to find areas where you still have to become more like Jesus and you love him telling you, be my sheep, walk this way, come over here, live this path of righteousness. Do you delight in that voice? Then you are one of his sheep. Now I think this is, this is perhaps one of, one of, if not the single best uh, comfort in, in, in trying to work out, am I a believer or not? Am I a Christian or not? Am I one of the sheep or not? So we can talk about the fruits of the Spirit. Often people talk about, well, are you, are you growing? Are you maturing? Are you, become, you know, more patient and humble and kind and all these sorts of things that the Spirit does in us? And, and that is true, and over the life of a person, we want to see them grow in that. But we all go through tough times, and we all go through times where we're going to fall back into sin, and we're going to go through times where it seems like there really is just no growth and nothing is happening, and are the fruits there? Are they not? It's so hard to see them in myself. But do you listen to the voice of the shepherd? Do you love reading the Bible and sitting under it? For that is the mark of the sheep. They hear the voice of the shepherd. And so be very careful of quarrelling with Scripture. Be very careful of playing fast and loose with it, as so many so-called Christians do today. Oh, no, that bit doesn't matter. We can ignore that bit. It's old. This bit's new. It's culturally outdated. We can reinterpret it. We can. Work. It, it's fine. We're cool. Don't worry about it. I don't have to change my life. Be very careful. 
for not listening to the voice of the shepherd is the mark of those who aren't sheep. Now, of course, be responsible. I'm not saying treat the Bible with a naive way of reading it. Be responsible. Sit yourself under it, of course. Be critical of it. Think, engage, work hard. But ultimately, if, especially if it disagrees with your view of the world, it's not the Bible that's wrong. Especially the bits that we find hard. Especially the bits that challenge what we think. We must sit under it. We must listen to the voice of the shepherd. Sixth implication. I told you it would be helpful to write these down. I'm trying to keep them all in your heads. Sixth implication. You may think then that there's no point in praying or evangelising. If it's God who chooses the sheep and those whom God hasn't chosen aren't going to be saved, then why bother? Why bother praying? Why bother evangelising? His sheep are going to come in. Those who aren't his sheep aren't going to, so... Might as well just be fatalistic and get on with it. And, and it can be very discouraging. Right? Maybe you've got that person in your life that you've been praying for and sharing the gospel with year after year after year after year. And now, well, maybe they're just not one of God's sheep, so I've wasted all that time and why bother? I've just got to give up. Will they ever be saved, this person that I love and care for? I want to say don't give up praying. Don't give up evangelising. Simply put, we don't have the knowledge that Jesus had. He could look at somebody and say, you are one of my sheep, you're not one of my sheep. He knew those God had given him. We don't have that knowledge. And it may take time, it may take years of somebody hearing the voice of Jesus before they finally realise that is the voice that I love, that I want to follow, that is the voice of my shepherd. And so pray and keep sharing the words of Jesus. Keep speaking scripture, keep speaking the voice of the shepherd into their lives. Maybe one day they will realise, oh, he's my shepherd too. Why did they not believe? Because they weren't Jesus' sheep. And as we come to the end of this chapter, we come full circle, back to where this section begins, back in chapter 5. We come right back to the issue that kicked it all off back then. Now, have you ever heard there's a, there's a statistic that gets thrown around? We heard it in our early days of marriage prep. Uh, it's something like 60% of the arguments that you have when you first get married are the arguments that you're going to keep having the rest of your married life. You ever, you ever heard that one? You know it to be true, right? You, you, you have this massive barney and you think you get it all out and you've resolved it, right? Finally, we're, we're both, we've sorted it out. We're all good from here on. And then why six months later are we having this same conversation? We sorted it, right? That's just keeps coming back around and around and around. And it's almost like there's a, there's a little marriage tiff going on here because the Jews come back to the same problem again with Jesus. And it was there back in chapter 5, chapter 5, verse 18, this was the problem they had with Jesus. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. That's some disagreement, that's some division, all the harder trying to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. There's their problem. There's the issue. Jesus, you're blaspheming. And as we come to verse 30, it seems like the same issue has come up again. I and the Father, Jesus says, are one. Again, the Jews picked up stones to stone him. Now, at first reading, that's brilliant. I mean, that, that's the passage we want. All right. 
I and the Father are one. Again, the Jews picked up stones to stone him. Jesus said to them, I've shown you many miracles. For which of these do you stone me? Oh, we're not stoning you for any of those, the Jews replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Perfect. Right? Anytime there's a knock on the door and it's one of those groups that don't believe that Jesus is God, right? You're J. Dub, it could be a Muslim perhaps, or a Jew even from, from back these days, right? There's the verse, right? There, there it is. There's the divinity of Jesus. Jesus, in his own words, claiming to be God. And the Jews, again, they kind of got it right. They understood Jesus to be saying, in the divide between mankind and divinity, between humanity and divinity, they understood Jesus to be saying, I fall on the divine side. They thought he was a man making himself God. Now they also got it completely wrong, because as it turns out, it was God making himself man, not man making himself God. The problem, though, is verse 34. Or verse 34 and 35, in fact. Because if you say to the J-Dub, well, Jesus says, I am God, he comes back and says, well, hang on, Jesus said this, is it not written in your law I have said, you are gods? And if you call them gods to whom the word of God came, and, and on he goes, right? So if, you, if you, you're saying that Jesus says he's God, well, actually, Jesus says there are lots of gods in the world. And what are you supposed to do with that? Now, these are tricky, tricky verses. I, I must admit there was a point during the week in preparation where I was fairly tempted to skip them. And then I realised that I just preached saying that we must sit under the voice of the shepherd, especially the tricky bits. And so I thought, well, we're going to have to deal with them. Let me give you four thoughts of how this flows. I'll read it again and then we'll think through it. Jesus answered them. This is his defence when they accuse him of blasphemy. This is his defence. Is it not written in your law, and he quotes Psalm 82, I have said, you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and notice the scripture cannot be broken, this is the scriptures we're talking about, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why do you accuse me of blasphemy? Because I said, I am God's son. Now what's the logic? Number one, words in the Bible can mean different things and the word God can be used in many different ways, even within the Bible. And so often there'll be, there'll be talk of, of the gods of the nations or the, the, the Baals, the Asheros, the idols. Now they're not really gods, they're not the one God, but we use that word God to talk of them. Or in the New Testament, right, greed, which is idolatry, it is, it is a God, we, we worship him in a sense. So what happens in Psalm 82? What is this word gods referring to in Psalm 82? Now you can look it up later if you like. This is Psalm 82 verse 6 in particular that's being quoted. And in Psalm 82 there are these, these rulers that have been ruling badly. Does this sound familiar? There are these shepherds who haven't been shepherding the flock. These gods who have been lording it over people instead of ruling for their good. And in Psalm 82, the psalmist calls upon God to bring an end, on the God, to bring an end to these little gods, these rulers, and to rule himself. Does that sound familiar? The shepherd, the shepherd, to replace the false shepherds. Exactly the same thing. But Jesus' point is this. If the Bible can speak of a human ruler as God with a little g, then why do you have a problem with me being called a god? What's the problem with that? Scripture calls others gods and, well, if I'm calling myself God, what's the problem? 
It doesn't particularly answer the question. It still leaves us kind of wondering why, why, what, why, why are you using that kind of an argument, Jesus? Now I take it that it comes down to verse 37. Am I God? Am I not God? Well, do not believe me unless I do what my Father does. Don't believe me unless what I have done shows me to be the shepherd, shows me to be the ruler, unless my rule is the kind of rule that God himself would have. Now, Christianity stands or falls on Jesus. It's as simple as that. It stands or falls on Jesus. Right? Evaluate my miracles, Jesus said, verse 38. If I do it, that is, if I do what the Father does, even though you don't believe me, believe the miracles that, may, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Ultimately, of course, the miracle of the resurrection. You evaluate Christianity upon Jesus. Believe or don't believe based on what I have said, what I have done, my death and my resurrection, the command that God gave me to lay down my own life and to take it up again. In fact, that is why John's Gospel was written. John kind of gives us a little cheat sheet that few of the other Gospels do. In chapter 20, verses 30 to 31, he says this, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. He did a whole bunch of miracles. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. These miracles, these signs, these events are recorded so that you can see Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the shepherd of Ezekiel 34 and that by believing you may have life. Let me conclude. Why does it matter? Why is it such a big deal? Why does Jesus matter? Why does it matter if he chooses or doesn't choose, if he is the shepherd or he isn't? Why does it matter if he is the Christ or not? Who cares if he calls himself God? I'll tell you why it matters. It matters to us because of death. It matters to us because every single one of us will one day face what is coming next. Death and judgment. Unless Jesus returns, in which case it will just skip straight to the judgment bit. It matters because of the promise Jesus makes to his sheep. Verse 28, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. That's why it matters. It matters because when we face death, you want to do it in the hands of the one who defeated it. They didn't believe because they weren't his sheep. And so I have to ask you, do you believe? How do you respond to the words of Jesus? Do you think he's a madman, he's a lunatic, he's making it up, he's crazy? Then what do you do with his miracles? Ultimately, the miracle of death and resurrection. Do you believe? Then praise God. Praise him. Thank him glorify him that he was kind enough to take you and make you one of his own into eternity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this 
extraordinary word for this insight into your your workings with Jesus. Father, thank you, thank you, thank you that you would take us, outsiders, us who are nobodies, us who are your enemies, us who are sinners, and you would make us your own. And Father, we pray for those who are still outside the flock, who still are to come in. Help us find them. Help us speak to them the voice of Jesus through your word, that they may hear the shepherd and follow him too. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.